0: Here we go, and
1: quiet! Sound speeds, camera rolling.
2: Holding for sound. Last looks, calling for last looks.
1: And set, and action. I need to swap batteries. You know, making movies is hard.
2: Making movies is hard.
1: Welcome to Making Movies is Hard, the podcast about the struggle of being an independent filmmaker. I am Ulrich Brussel.
2: I'm Liz Manichel.
1: This week we have a really fun discussion with a longtime listener, first-time guest, Taylor Morden, who comes on the show to talk about his latest documentary, The Last Blockbuster, which is all about the final Blockbuster video in existence in Oregon. But for a good portion of this interview, we talk about as another amazing film project, Project 88, Back to the Future 2, which is a 100% fan made recreation of Back to the Future 2, which is one of my favorite movies. And it was done in the quarantine, which he like did. He's like, oh, we're quarantined. Let's remake this movie together collectively across the world. Yeah, that's a great idea. I don't know where he gets these ideas, but it's awesome.
2: When I first talked to him like a year ago, I didn't know he had a sense of humor because we had a very dry conversation about distribution. And then he's so funny. Uh, When we talked to him yesterday, I was like, oh, I just didn't know that he's dry and hilarious. But he's so charming. And like, what a what a trooper to be constantly making content on his own dime with no film school with like just for him. You know just to like bring joy like I just think he's such a lovely human and I wanted to say that I guess for some reason
1: no yeah totally agreed and the other thing I wanted to say which I didn't get to say on the show yesterday which is really even more random but there's a moment where we talk about Adam Brody being the best actor in the OC and I feel like I have to contest that because Peter Gallagher is an, an amazing actor and he's, he's awesome in that show and he was like the reason why I like that show and I didn't even know who he was Really when I watched that show Because I was like younger But now What was my favorite thing That he was in
2: Center stage No sorry
1: Yes I just watched Center stage recently And he's fantastic in that And then um, There was something else Where Oh he's in um, The Player Yeah he's in The Player And he's in a couple other Amazing movies um, You know Just spanning the 80s and 90s So I don't know Shout out to Peter Gallagher You're my hero (laughs) And uh, the OC rocks. <laughs> Anyways, before we get to this conversation with Taylor, let's go. And Liz, do you have some stuff for us today?
2: Oh, um, you have the mail. I have the mail. <laughs> my breath
0: catches in my chest until I hear three little words. You've
2: got mail.
1: What do we have this week, Liz?
2: I know we got a bunch of listener questions this week, right? But we're just going to share one of them.
1: But... We ha- I haven't even responded to Michelle yet, she, who wrote this really amazing question to us. So Michelle, apologies um, for not responding to your email yet, but we will. I will probably have responded by the time this comes out, and we will answer your question on the show next week. So thank you.
2: <laughs> this week we got a question from Matthew, who is aka 33 Voorhees, um, who wrote an iTunes review for us and. I mean, like, how can you not think about Jason Voorhees, right? Like, are we, we should have asked him. Maybe via email we'll be like, are you, are you a fan? Like, tell us what this Voorhees Well, he's is
1: obviously about. a fan, so I don't know.
2: What if his middle name is Voorhees and he's 33 years old? Could be. I was wrong last time when I guessed why the, <laughs> the username was what it was. Either way, uh, Matthew writes, Hi, I wrote a review a few weeks ago and had a few questions as the, uh, as a new to film person. I'm a writer. I have completed three books. I would love to transition into screenwriting. I love your outlook on the film industry and where the average people fit, in, uh, fit into it. My question is, what is the best way to learn and grow in the film world? Uh, for me at this point, I really can't afford in time or money to go to film school. Good. Sorry, Liz editorializing. Good. Don't go. <laughs> um, so what's the next way you'd say to go? Keep keep up all the good work and inspiring all of us. Uh, that's very sweet. Thank you, Matthew. Ulrich, you have to answer first because I read that whole thing.
1: Yeah, I've been thinking about this uh, ever since he wrote the the email, and um, you know, I feel like depending on what you're trying to do, I would give different advice. And so it sounds like he wants to uh, be a writer, and that's specifically what his goal is. So for me, it's like, well, once you figured out how to write a script, which is pretty easy these days, like you can go onto a million different blogs, websites, um, you know, anything to find like how to format a script. Um, cell text is free now it's like this really awesome screenwriting software i mean you can buy highland for 20 bucks that's uh, john Oggs's screenwriting software which is pretty easy to use go to script notes obviously to, to listen to that podcast because that's a writer focused podcast that only well not only but like it, it one of the major things it, it exists for is to instruct new writers on how to write properly and like basically bring writers into the world of screenwriting you know so That's like an incredibly valuable resource. I would listen to every single episode, starting with episode one. That's what I did when I first found out about the show. I listened to episode one through whatever it was at the time, 150. And uh, John August's podcast, uh, Script Notes with Craig Mazin, that's a must listen. And then the thing that I really would say is like, just write a script, like a short script and get it produced, like find some filmmaker to make it because like, that is really how you're going to learn. Like, if you just write a whole bunch of scripts and then nothing gets made, like, you're not really going to learn anything. You're not really going to see what your movie or what your are writing looks like when it's on screen or what the process is really like. So I would, like, write some things, short specifically, and then try to find writers to, or filmmakers to make them, like, through Stage 32, through any of these other online communities, or just through your own community. Just find people who want to make movies and try to get them to make your scripts. You know, I think that would be what I would do. But Liz, what do you
2: think? No, That's such good advice. And there's so many directors who who don't want to write and are looking for scripts and don't know. Yeah, like, and I only write to make as well. I mean, I do enjoy the process, but I don't just like write in my spare time. Like, oh, I'm just going to write a script. I don't do that. So I, I, I get that perspective. So I agree, like, offer your services to a director. Try to connect with someone. Write something low budget. Though this person may not need any support getting pages, I started this thing in December called Two Pages a Day December. <laughs> it's just me and like two people other than me. It's not like a revolution, but I've never been able to write so much in my life because you just limit yourself to two pages. Like, if you write more, you know, that's amazing. You know, that's the mitzvah. But like, I just became Jewish for five minutes. I just like reverted back to my Jewish roots. But the idea is you just open up your screenwriting software and write two pages a day and then you have presumably 62 pages. So put yourself on a writing schedule where you just produce pages or sit in front of a computer for a little bit every day to try to ignite that writer in you and like don't judge the pages. Don't judge yourself for crap like Congratulate yourself for getting work out into the world. Just kind of vomit as much as you can out, I think, and then you could reformat later. So, a lot of people get stuck on just like all of these worries about slug lines and and formatting. But you could also just write it in prose and then have pay someone to reformat it and then learn from that process too. So, hundred percent agree with the Albrecht saying, but also hold yourself accountable to writing pages, or else. Um, You're just going to keep talking about how you want to be a screenwriter.
1: What is this thing that's on your list here, Liz? It says your word should mean something.
2: Oh, so my big thing is like, you know, we're all surrounded by filmmakers who say, I want to do this. I want to do that. I've been approached by people who are like, I want to make this feature. And then they disappear. And so my my perspective is, if you want to go into film and you want to be a screenwriter, uh, hold yourself accountable, have due dates and have a goal and stick to the goal and be really really hard on yourself about it because there's so many people in this community who who talk a good game but don't actually have content and i'm just i just want matthew to get his work out into the world
1: (laughs) well yeah i think that's like a really good point is like you know don't don't talk about a project publicly unless you're actually gonna make it because you know lots of people talk about what they're gonna do and then they don't do it um and it's okay to like, like, because when I was getting started, like, I would talk about, like, talking about it was the way that I would actually make myself do it. Like, if I didn't talk about a, a film publicly to my friends or, you know. Not necessarily on social media, but anywhere. If I didn't like wasn't vocal, then I didn't think it was going to happen. But then the key is like you actually do it. But you can't do that and and not make it because then you just don't look like you're someone who anyone should take seriously. And if you're looking for help later, like people aren't going to help you because they're like, oh, this guy talked about this movie and he never made it. Or
2: or this word means nothing. You become like um, an unreliable character in your community. But um, and I also write stuff down. Like I don't get anything done unless it's on my to do list. And and then I have to do a second to do list every day on a piece of paper so I could cross things out. It's very stupid. But what I'm saying is don't just talk about it and have it be this thing floating in the ether. Like every day, do something that goes towards your goal of that script or that film or that project, whatever it is, even if it's super minor, even if it's looking at. Um, What's that shot website where you look at um, images and like they help for lookbooks?
1: Oh, I don't know. But that's a great I want to go to that website. Oh,
2: my God. (laughs) Julius Swain loves it. But I'm just saying like even if it's like minor fun research, just do something every day towards that project.
1: Yeah, that's great advice. I I, when I write, I make a a task list every day of like this is what I want to accomplish. Like this is the scene I'm going to work on. These are the other scenes I need to work on after. Uh, Bigger ideas You know And like That's what I do For my work too It's like When I have uh, A job It's like Every day has A list of tasks You know Especially when I get Closer to the deadline Because it's like
2: And it's so fun To cross things off It's like the most fun thing
1: Checking things off There's nothing That's greater than that (laughs) That's why I like Being an AD Or a producer Is like you know Just get to check off Like okay They got that shot Check You know And I didn't have To do anything Perfect Check (laughs) So, uh, yeah, if you want to be like Matthew, you can send us a question or comment or suggestion um, to podcast at com. Or if you like the show as much as Matthew, a.k.a. 33 Voorhees, did, you can leave a review on iTunes or any of the places you can leave reviews for podcasts. We also have a Patreon page. So if you really love the show, um, like our guest Taylor Morton does, because he's actually a pa- patron of our Patreon, you can go to www.patreon.com slash podcast and give us a dollar five dollars or nine dollars and um for nine you'll get the little pin for what's it three is when you get the sticker is that right liz or four
2: i think so yeah three or four
1: whatever we'll give you a sticker and then lastly you should jump over to our instagram page and click the link in our bio to get to our brand new youtube page which you know it got like a big influx of like you know followers and subscribers a few weeks ago and now it's like just hovering at whatever it is 175 or whatever number we got and so let's get that number higher people let's get let's get let's cross 200 we could do that right like that's not too hard
2: we can we can
1: liz anything else to add in this section
2: thank you it's the holidays thank you
1: (laughs) and as always thank you guys for listening and for everything let's get to get shorty so you make movies huh i produce feature motion pictures i got an idea for a movie I just want to watch that movie after, you know, referencing it all the time. (laughs) Such a good movie.
2: I was like in middle school and I owned a Get Shorty poster, the Get Shorty book. I had the soundtrack, I think. Actually, I love that movie. Weird for like an 11 year old to love that movie, though.
1: Get Shorty was my brother's favorite movie. And he's like a few years older than me. But that was like his. And we had it on VHS. And uh, that was like the one that he'd always want to watch. And, you know, I would not complain because it's got a lot of swear words and it's funny. But this week on Get Shorty, we have, you guessed it, another horror short film. This one was written and directed by Brittany Snyman, and it was just a total blast. I love this short. I I watched a couple this time. Um, No offense to any of the other shorts that I watched, but uh, this one just grabbed me from the very beginning and uh, has really great production value and was really impressive, um, not just story-wise, but also with the visual and practical effects. So here's Brittany to talk about her film, Goodbye.
3: From the start, the intention for Goodbye was to create it for Thinking Art Entertainment Short Scare Series, which, as the title suggests, means it needs to be a short. Every year for the past four years, they've released two short films around Halloween and as part of the Short Scare Series, and I've actually been a part of this for the past three years. Uh, this year, we wanted to step it up a bit, so we gave ourselves two days to film each of the films, whereas before, we normally only gave ourselves one day. Um, so we were actually able to expand a bit more on the story, which also led to more SFX and VFX. So about two years ago, I had written goodbye in a Google Doc <laughs> before starting work one day. Uh, the story had just been bouncing around in my head for a few days and I finally decided like, I just needed to get it out there, so I just wrote it down. It started a little different than the version that we eventually created that you guys have seen. So the previous version included kids. They were actually the ones who played with the Ouija board, but in the end, Mary got possessed. Everything plays out very similarly to how it happens now. When I first started working on the Short Scare Series project this year, me and the other producers uh, tossed around ideas for a story for a couple of weeks, and then one day I decided I'm just gonna send them goodbye, uh, which was still in the Google Doc version from two years ago. (laughs) Uh, and it turns out everyone seemed to really like it, so we went with it. What I really like about Goodbye, and I think this was something that stood out to the other producers as well, was the relationship between Mary and Chuck. Um, so w- we really like the playfulness and you know like the, the back and forth that you see between the two of them in the film. And something else that we also really like is that the, the first half of the film feels very happy, whereas the second half um, very quickly changes once Mary has her possession scene in the the bathroom. So I I just think the dichotomy between their relationship as well as the story itself, you know, the first half versus the second half, is really cool um, and just adds to the tone. But ultimately, we really wanted to create a story that embodied, you know, the feeling of Halloween. So I think Goodbye does this while also presenting a, a fun film with really cool SFX and VFX. Um, Also, I want to note that I am an SFX artist so pretty much everything I write involves SFX in some way or another because I just can't help it. (laughs) So we made Goodbye on an incredibly low budget. Uh, It was actually self-funded by the producers. So we had four producers and two co-producers and all of them had some sort of role on set which actually significantly (laughs) reduced the budget from the start. Um, On top of that, the group that we create most of our films with are our friends. So they love making films, we all love making films, Uh, and we're always just looking for another opportunity to create something. Uh, So a good portion of the cast and crew actually just volunteered their time. And pretty much all of our funds went to either Crafty or even like the, the costumes. That was pretty much it. So I'm still pretty early in my career. The first time I was on set was in October of 2018, and I was actually brought on as an SFX artist. And this was actually for the short film Slash, which was um, one of the films or part of Thinking Art Entertainment short scare series in 2018. Since then, I've produced and directed. So before making Goodbye, my biggest goal was to improve my skills as a director. Um, I don't have a lot of experience here. So that's why I I thought it would be a great time to just, you know, take it all in and try to improve as much as I can. Um, And now that the, the film is fully done, I can definitely say that I feel like I succeeded with my goal. You know, I really enjoy directing and plan to continue directing in the future. And, you know, there were a lot of things such as learning that I need to storyboard or that I could improve my technical skills on set. I learned so much working on this project and uh, have a lot that I need to learn before I direct again. (laughs) Honestly, I've never really found a deeper meaning to the story. I think it's pretty straightforward, so I can't really say that I think it serves as like a cautionary tale or anything. I think it's just a, a fun film with some really great SFX and VFX. And then on top of that, our sound mixer did such an amazing job. Really, the whole team just nailed it. Just hit it out of the park, and I think they did so good. In the end, I think the best purpose for the film is actually to showcase the team's abilities. And I guess if you do use a Ouija board, always remember to say goodbye. (laughs) Which, by the way, I've never used a Ouija board. So prior to writing and then eventually creating the film, I actually had to Google how to use a Ouija board. (laughs) So the film has only been out since November 1st of this year, so I haven't had too much time to think about how I might change up the story, but one thing that I really struggled with when I was writing it was coming up with an ending that I felt really hit home. So I think if given the chance to update the story at all, that's most likely what I would change, uh, is the ending. And one thing that I had thought about that I thought would be pretty cool was adding in the demon in like the human form um, at the end. So right now we see Mary, the the smoke escapes her mouth and everything. And I just thought it'd be really cool after that, if we actually saw the the demon form somewhere in the basement before the actual ending of the film. But as the story stands now, I'm super happy with how all of it came together.
1: So Liz, what did you think of goodbye?
2: I always hate anything negative about <laughs> any of the films because the point is to promote the film and then you asked me what i think and i'm like i can't stop myself from the verbal diarrhea that happens like be honest
1: just, they need it they love it they want it
2: i want i Brittany, you are a wonderful director i support you i support your work i want you to continue to make work i'm very cranky i don't like cgi ever I I even, even at the end of Boo, I didn't like the CGI that they did, but I didn't say it on the show. I was more interested in the really cool makeup when they're cutting their mouths. And I was really, you know, in the actual blood. You know, I love all the practical effects, but all the CGI really took me out and kind of irked me. Um, But I'm just very sensitive to that kind of stuff for no reason whatsoever. I didn't really understand the purpose again. It's kind of like Dave Bunsen where I was like, okay, well, this is cool. It's fun to watch, but she's being punished for not ending the Ouija game. But why are they cutting their mouths? Like, I don't know. The casting was off. Um, (laughs) Oh, my gosh. This is so negative. But... Great use of resources, great use of suspense when that clown is around holding that knife. I'm freaked out, like super interesting to watch. I didn't pause it. You know, I watched all the way through and really enjoyed myself. It's just not for me. Okay, that's all.
1: Wow, not for Liz God,
2: What? Why, why do we do this?
1: No, no, it's good I mean, it's really interesting to talk about uh, these things Because, like, you know, I was thinking about um, uh, Hellraiser I just watched Hellraiser for the first Ooh, time recently Joe after, Bob's
2: second favorite movie After
1: Joe Bob said it was his second favorite movie I was like, I have to watch this movie And um, I totally dug it, I totally liked it There's a little bit in that movie of, like Where is this coming from? Like why is this here in the very beginning? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. But then the reason why the characters suffer the way they do does have relevance because of the actions of the characters in the movie. So it's like I think to some degree, it's like if you don't have like an explanation of why like, where this world's coming from, where this object comes from, why this is happening. Like, that's okay as long as your characters are paying the price for a reason of any kind. And even in that movie, it's a pretty, like, broad reason. It's like, oh, yeah, like, you know, he's, like, cheating. Um,
2: He's (laughs) very indulgent in his life. Yeah.
1: (laughs) Well, yeah, he was, like, I think you could pretty much call him a rapist, basically. But, yeah, so that kind of works. Um, And then the way that that movie ends is really good but anyways i think my point is like it's really challenging because i run into this this problem all the time in my movies like i i often don't like to explain where the thing comes from um which i think is okay but then i think you gotta have like other things that back up the 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 meaning of the movie to to go along with it
2: well yeah and it's like she didn't say she didn't close the loop on her seance right right? so that's is that why though I don't know I was reading some of the comments and someone was like, well, damn, I'll make sure to stop my seance before I leave the board. I don't know. Like, it seems like they were attributing all the right. events to her not saying goodbye.
1: Oh, interesting. That could that could be. Yeah, that's, that's interesting. I think that's
2: the motivation. I do. But I just want to acknowledge that I am a glass house because I mean an entire movie where David Bowie's death opened up a wormhole in an apartment and he never really explained that. So, like, right. I'm part of the problem.
1: Yeah. But it, the characters and the journey they go through is, right. you little, know, has significance. Yeah. Well, um, it's interesting because, like, the whole thing starts with, like, she's talking about this house being haunted and, like, things happening or whatever. So it's like she, you walk into a problem that's existing. To me, if there was enough information in there, like, oh, she didn't close the seance, so that's why it happened. Right. If, it, if it it's more before. like this is yeah. just a creature in her house and these guys got unlucky and they're fucked, you know, like... yeah.
2: Maybe I that's know why. what it is. I don't <laughs> know. She was great. She was fun. Camera was interesting. Like there were a lot of technical elements that I liked. I just I just started picking things apart because I had to have something to write about. But Brittany, you're great. Capping off my negative part of the show. You, you you're going to celebrate <laughs> it, which is fantastic.
1: Yeah, I love the opening. I thought that was amazing. I think that was what got me into the, the short and like the film work. The, the all that was done there was just super high level. So that, I think, you know, was one of the reasons why I just really dug it. And then the performance, especially from the lead, was really good. And then, you know, I thought there was a mix of practical and VFX. I'm not sure if that's true, but I'm pretty sure it was both, you know. And so I think oh, I liked it. absolutely, the,
2: I think it was both. Yeah,
1: yeah, so I think that was one of the things I appreciated. And I'm just going to defend her on that really quick because, you know... Like I tried to make a movie with 100% practical effects and it didn't work out. Like it just, they they didn't do what they needed to do on set and in camera. And so then we had to add, we had to put visual effects into it in order for it to work. And I don't know what her thing was, if it was always like some are going to be visual effects, some are going to be practical, but, um, you know, I get it. Like it just, you, you sometimes you need to rely on the VFX.
2: But, well, think about certain VFX that like, That I think rang false that you could extract from the short and it would still be a successful short like the smoke monster turning its head and you seen its glowing eyes like I don't need I don't need that. I don't think I think it's more scary to not see the monster or it just being this like bodiless form Um, or like the scare the jump scare in the mirror. I think you have suspense without those things.
1: I agree with that. I mean, you know, I think the whole smoke into the mouth thing was cool and yes, whatever. I did like and that. Yeah. That worked. But like I guess the the one thing that I think we're just now we're talking about this monster thing is like you have a monster and then suddenly the monster becomes the people. And so it's, you you kinda had both, right? It's like it was a monster and then it was a possession, like I kind of would have preferred if it was either just a monster going around cutting people up or if it was only a possession because I think I was a little confused when we kind of had both. Um, I, I also wrote the same thing. i did not 100% sure about why and what it all means, but does it really matter? I don't know. Maybe it doesn't. It was fun. I watched the whole thing. I smiled a bunch. I got, you know, got the thrills of a, of a good horror short, so I don't know. Obviously, I'm going to prefer a movie that has, like, a meaning and a purpose and a message more than a movie that doesn't. But I think for some shorts, like, you know, how important is it? Like, when I watch Fast and the Furious, like, am I really learning anything from those movies? Or am I just having a good time with, you know, um, Dom and the gang? You know, it's like...
2: You're watching it because it's silly, though, because it's so extreme that it makes no sense. I think this film is not extreme to that degree. It's well-done horror. It just... I agree that origin is a little murky. And by the way, Brittany, if you want to take me saying well done horror and turn that into a quote <laughs> and use that to support you, not that my name means anything, please do. And then you could take the plethora of really nice things that Ulrich said and you could use that too. Again, not that it, I think Ulrich's word means a lot, but what I'm saying is like, we want we support you.
1: And I liked the ending. I thought it was fun. You know, Um, I just I thought the filmmaking was really good with as far as like all the the, the thrills delivering on the horror premise with like the different angles and the different ways that you conveyed those moments. I thought those were really good. Great job, Brittany. And uh, yeah, I guess Liz says what? What's your advice? Liz have a message.
2: (laughs) Yeah, but that's my my like hill that I'll always die on is like, what's yeah, what's the what are you trying to say?
1: Brittany, if you feel like responding to us, I'd love to to hear like what you were trying to say or if what the message was of the movie or if, if if you literally were like, no, I don't want there to be a bigger message. It's just about this this couple that gets screwed over. Like, let us know. And and also, I'm curious. I'm pretty sure this was filmed in quarantine. I'm not 100 percent sure, but I think this was made post-COVID. Ooh, so tell us. even more kudos to you if that's the case. But yeah, I think, uh, I think it's time to move on to our chat with Taylor after all this, unless Liz, you have any final words on goodbye?
2: Love me. Love me, Brittany. (laughs) Um, no, (laughs) you did great.
1: (laughs) All right. And here's Taylor.
2: So as you know, we start off the show with, uh, five rapid fire questions. So for the last blockbuster, how many days did you shoot?
0: I knew you were going to ask that and I still couldn't quite do the math, um, (laughs) We're coming up on four years since we started, and it's the kind of thing where we would just keep our camera bags packed and the store would call if something was about to happen as best they could. And so more than 50 days, less than 100, probably. And then uh, what was your budget, if you can say? We did a Kickstarter and we spent some money out of pocket, but me and the other primary filmmaker on it, you know, we didn't get paid. We just kind of donated our time. So there's, I I think of it as two budgets. There's the budget that we paid out of pocket, which was under a hundred thousand. And then there's what it would have cost had we been making minimum wage, which is a lot more than that.
2: Did you actually do the math or is it that just...
0: No, that's too depressing. (laughs) If you've ever tried to do the math to see what you're making hourly on a film, but it's...
2: I mean, I've had to quantify my hours recently and figure out like, what should your what is your value so I think that anyway that's a separate conversation um, you kind of already answered this but let's try it again um, how long did you work on the film from inception to release
0: yeah the inception was like late 2016 early 2017 the first day of shooting when I got permission was in March of 2017 so I would say from then until now it's like three and three
1: quarters years wow awesome And then uh, how big was your crew? On the biggest days, it was
0: six people. And usually it was two of us. Sometimes it was just me.
2: And out of all your projects, how difficult was this one?
0: I think it's the most difficult, but that's partly because I was making two movies at the same time. So it's a little bit hard to bounce. There would be days when I was filming for both. And so... (laughs) Those days were the most difficult, but um, this one took the longest, I think. What was the other movie you were working on at the same time? I made a documentary about ska music. Oh, right. And I started that one six months after I started this one, but that one came out a year ago.
3: So for
1: two years, I was working on both. What compelled you to make two documentaries at the same time, my friend? Insanity,
0: I think. <laughs> yeah. um, no, I, I had started the Blockbuster one and I I hit some roadblocks. There were some people who didn't want to work with me. You know, the some of the remaining stores were not open to having a documentary made about them. And so I had kind of not given up but put it aside and was like, Oh, I gotta wait for something else to happen. I can't just make a story about one of the last twelve blockbusters but I can't go to the other five or, you know, that kind of thing. And so I was thinking about it, but it wasn't moving forward. And I don't do well with idle hands. I got to be making something. So I put out feelers and said, what should I make a documentary on? And I had been a musician. I was a ska trumpet player for years and years and years and years. So it was kind of an obvious thing. My first movie was a music doc. So it was in my wheelhouse So I started on that one. And then a couple months after I started on the second dock, I think that's when we got the call saying, hey, we're gonna be one of the last few blockbusters, you should come, you know. The one that was holding out on you, the one up in Portland, they're closed. So now (laughs) we're the last one in the state. And the ones in Alaska may be closing. So because of the way real-time docks work, it was happening and I had to work on it. My other one was a historical dock that the ball was rolling on, but Nothing new was happening, so I could kind of alternate focus or, you know, because the subjects of both movies, somewhere in LA, somewhere in New York, I could combine, you know, if I if I have to spend $600 on a plane ticket, I can knock out footage for two movies in that same trip. I think it worked out. I don't-
2: oh, That's super smart. My I accountant mean,
0: might disagree.
2: <laughs> well, you, you refer to Last Blockbuster as what it is, right? A real-time documentary, but there's- also, this film, Project 88, about, you know, recreating Back to the Future. And then you have Pick It Up, the Scott documentary. So, like, I'm noticing a trend of nostalgia going on. And I, I'm curious where that – is that your overall theme as a filmmaker? Or is that just happenstance?
0: That's my overall theme as a person. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm one of those Arrested Development type people. I was like a, a latchkey kid raised on TV and movies. And all that stuff stuck with me. And I'm almost 40, so I'm of the age where we didn't have the internet, we didn't have, you know, cell phones, we had VHS tapes, and we had cartoons, and we had, you know, whatever mixtape we could make off the radio, and all that stuff really, really stuck with me, and so I know it did for a lot of other people, so when I start thinking about making movies, it was always, well, I want to make something that I would like, because I know there's at least a couple thousand other people that like the same stuff I do.
1: Right. I think that's like the best place to start for any project is like what do I like? Yeah. And what what drives me because you know, when you're, you know, making two documentaries at once, flying to New York, up like 3 a.m. editing, it's like your, your love of it is what's going to keep you going on it, not like, oh, I think it's going to get into Sundance, or oh I think other people will like this movie, or whatever, you know. So what is the situation with the blockbusters? It, is the one that it's in the movie, is that literally the last one now, or are there like three others? Like, what's the status? It is the last one in the known universe. Um.
0: People, I get messages all the time from people who are like, I saw one in, in Italy or Africa or something. And it's like, it turns out to be an abandoned one where they couldn't afford to take the sign down. Uh Um, Or we did find out about one that was running without the official license because of the way they shut down. It was all very complicated, but I think even that one has shut down by now. So yeah, when we started making the movie, there were 12 that we knew of.
2: And that was in 2017, right? You were saying?
0: Yeah. Beginning of 2017, there were there were 12, mostly Oregon, Texas, and Alaska. And there was one in Australia.
2: I used to be a video clerk for many different video stores. And it was like, my goal was to be a video clerk. And I scored the job and I got like the employee picks section. And it was like highlights. And then when you recommended a film to someone and they came back and they said, Hey, that was great. That those are like, high points in my life. <laughs> like There's so much joy when you think about the video stores. There's no question. that I just committed the cardinal sin. It's just a comment. Just a comment about just my life. A <laughs> well,
0: I, I also wanted so badly to work at a video store or a record store when I was a, a teenager. Those were the jobs. Um, I ended up working uh, at my dad's restaurant washing dishes, which is not the dream job. <laughs> but I, I applied at Blockbuster several times and I never got past Uh, the interview and I may or may not have held that grudge for the past 20 years and and now that I've spent so much time at Blockbuster Video over the last four years I feel like I work there you know I'll go in there and I'll like tidy up and move things oh the you know the new release shelf is not organized or this movie's in the wrong section like I would do that on filming days because I don't know there's it was like a point of pride I feel like that's my Blockbuster you know
1: (laughs) right well, without getting too off track, I can also relate. Like, I did apply to video stores when I was looking for jobs as a teenager and got denied. And I ended up working at a pizza place, also washing dishes, among other things. So I feel your pain. But, uh, you know, there's a lot of questions I have about the last blockbuster. But before we get into that, I, I'm i just dying to talk to you about Project 88. Because um, when you emailed me about it a few months ago, I watched it. And, oh, my God, I, I was like... I was loving this movie. I watched the whole thing from start to finish on on my big screen. Um, My wife bowed out after a little while, (laughs) but, uh, but I was like, dude, this is like incredible. And it kind of, the whole project blows my mind in like when I just, when I was watching it and when I think about it. So could you just explain to people what this is and, and yeah, just intro it for everybody.
0: Yeah. So earlier this year, everything got shut down and I had a lot of projects get canceled and a lot of work go away and I've from the very beginning I've always kind of taken the pandemic very seriously I don't go out I don't do anything so I've turned down any work that wasn't just editing at home and I knew a lot of other filmmakers also had their shoots canceled This was before people even figured out how to have a COVID safe anything so um, in talking to people online everybody was like we should do something you know, creative that we can do from home. And that like really stuck with me. And I was like, what can we do where a bunch of people can work on something and then we can put it all together and it's like a movie. Uh, and I had known about these sort of fan remakes. They did them for Star Wars, way back in the early internet days. And there's one for, I think, Raiders. Robocop and Shrek. Well, Raiders was like one person.
3: Oh,
2: right, it was like one like, group Like a group right? of friends
0: who redid the whole movie. And that took them, years and years. And I thought we could do one of my all-time favorite movies, Back to the Future 2, because I love the first one, but the, the second one is way wackier and it's got hoverboards and it's, to me, it's the more fun thing. And it's one of the only movies that really works if you change actors every scene because the characters are so iconic. There's a Marty and there's a Doc in almost every scene. And it's hard to mess up those caricatures. Like even in like one scene, they're bananas, but you can tell which (laughs) banana is Marty, right? (laughs) Um, So we we split up the movie into 88 sections and sent them out to filmmakers on the internet and said, look, you've got one week, obey all your COVID protocols and just do whatever you can. Some people did animation. Some people acted it out with their pets or their kids or potatoes or bananas. Um, I did mine with stop motion animation with cardboard cutout because that's what I had. And then I stitched it all together. Not everybody met the one week deadline, but pretty much I wanted to give everybody a month, but my wife was like, don't spend a month on this. (laughs) Smart. So yeah, and then in the end, after just a few weeks from production and then me putting it all together and we had to like redo the music for a lot of scenes and, and things like that, We had an entire shot-for-shot fan remake of Back to the Future 2, and we put it up on YouTube. We did a whole premiere, and a whole bunch of people watched it. It got the most press of anything I had done to date. It was recognized by the Academy. They did one of those, like, why we love movies during a pandemic YouTube montage, (laughs) and it had us in it. I was in between Star Wars and something else. It was, like, mind-blowing. It was just this thing that we did for fun, that took a week and it's like, you never know what's going to hook people in.
2: I guess I have like, again, 30 million questions. I'll try to get to a good one, but like your lifestyle is allowing you to kind of come up with these really cool ideas and activate them. And I'm just trying to figure it out. Like, I mean, like you sounds like you edit and you get compensated through your film and through your editorial work, which is obviously filmmaking. Um, But is how did you get to the point where you can just kind of say, I want to do a <laughs> recreation of, of this movie.
0: I mean, right now I'm making my living from my first two movies, um, like sort of passive income and then editing jobs. And I was before that shooting commercials and you know doing production work. And so I did have a couple commercials shot that I was in post on that I could kind of skate through this year. But I got to this point from years of doing uh, flash animation and then weddings and real estate videos and local commercials and anything that I could figure out how somebody would pay me to point a camera at something. And I had a little bit of savings when I moved from Washington, D.C. back here to Oregon to this small town. And then I couldn't get those jobs because there was only a few to go around and there were a lot of existing companies here doing the work and they did not want me to help them at all. (laughs) (laughs) So that's when I started doing feature films because I had time on my hands and I had the skill set and I had a little bit of money saved up from doing uh, something like 100 weddings over the few years before that. And so I did a feature and was mostly funded on Kickstarter and then it made a little bit of money. And then I did a second feature and it was funded on Kickstarter and it made a little bit more money. And so now with blockbuster it's my third feature and i'm really hoping it'll make a little bit more money than the second one and then you know the first one the second one keep making a tiny bit of money it's this passive income thing where if i i figure if i do 20 more movies then i can stop making movies and it'll pay the bills (laughs) right so what was your first movie it was another music documentary called here's to life it's about a one-hit wonder band from the 90s that um is still playing today and they have kind of an up and down career trajectory that mirrors the music industry they got dropped when the major labels all crumbled and then they were one of the first independent bands to like release their own music on the internet back in 1999
2: wow nice and would you account the success of these films because you know what you're describing we say this a few times to guess it's like is the dream right you're like a working filmmaker who's like living off of money from your film so you live you're living the dream right now would you account the success of your films to the niche audiences of these of of these bands or would you say it's like the festivals you got into or is it the distributors you chose like what do you point to
0: well for my first two i did not choose distributors i'm self-distributing everything um, yeah. and i I attribute the fact that they're profitable, and I say profitable, but again, if I count all of my hours, it's not minimum wage, but it made more than my out-of-pocket expenses, right? So I am paying myself back, but I attribute it to sort of, I have this this DIY punk rock ethic that came from playing in bands where I knew you're not going to make a lot from playing a gig, but you might sell enough t-shirts or enough CDs out of the trunk of your car to keep it going. And you put that money back in and you go to the next town and then you do it again. And so I've done very much that, especially with the music docs, it it fits really well. So I do make DVDs and I sell them and I mail them out of my garage and I make posters and I made a vinyl soundtrack and uh, buttons and stickers and, hats and t-shirts and everything you can make most movies make money like all at once you sell it to a distributor you get a big check and yay or you get residuals but i feel like i earn if i make 20 dollars from a movie i made it's because i did that facebook post found those people got their order processed it put the movie in the envelope and mailed it to them and that's like it's like retail filmmaking like (laughs) one-on-one
2: It's grassroots. I lo- Those are my t- favorite type of filmmakers.
1: So, so how, how are you doing it? Are you doing it like, you know, where, where are you doing your, your self-distribution? Is it just a website and you're selling DVDs straight off the website? Are you on any platforms where you're getting money th- each time people rent, rent it or buy it? Or how are you attacking your, your self-distribution?
0: I learn a lot as I go. My first movie was literally just a website selling DVDs and then I had it on Vimeo on demand um, because I was already subscribing to Vimeo and I, I knew you could do it. And I figured if I can make, it's pretty expensive to be able to sell on there. I don't know what it's like, $20, $30 a month. So I had, to, I had to sell like three copies a month for it to break even, but I did that. And then it was like a year before I found out about Amazon Video Direct. And I, I feel stupid because I missed the window when people could make money on Prime. Like by nice. the time I put it up there, it was already down to a penny an hour. So
2: Sometimes it's two cents.
0: Yeah, I've heard. <laughs> it's only up for rent or sale. And then my second movie, I had already learned all that. So it was up on Amazon right away for rent or sale, still is. And um, Amazon and Vimeo. And I just put both of those old movies up on FilmHub Hub but I can't figure it out. Like they've placed me places. There's no money coming in. It doesn't seem like it does anything. And they keep sending me these emails like, you want to do better on film hub. And I'm like, yes, I do. Want <laughs> to How, what do I, <laughs> but it is, I would say primarily DVDs through a website and just connecting with, especially with music docs, connecting with the fans of those bands of the genre and you know, reaching out and being like, hey, if you love this music, have I got a DVD for you.
2: But with Black, last Blockbuster, you went with 1091, which is, you know, we could get into the associations with 1091, but they're an iteration, (laughs) an evolution of the orchard, right? Um, But what, were you just like, I'm tired, I want to hand this over to someone? Or were you like, are they going to amp, did you feel that they were going to amplify your reach?
0: Well, so it's different with the music docs, I feel like, I knew how to target my audience. I knew how to connect directly to the fans of ska music. It's not a lot of people and I'm one of them and I know where they are and I can go to the concerts and I can get the bands involved. I know how to market this. And all the distributors, because we did get a lot of offers, they all said, this is great. We'll get you on all the platforms, but we don't know how to market this. So you're going to have to market it. And I'm like, well, if I'm going to market it myself, I'm not going to give you 20% that just doesn't add up to me. But with Blockbuster, if you find 10 people in a room, eight of them have heard of Blockbuster, if not 10. And five of them think it's an interesting story. So it's not as much a matter of finding that niche audience as it is about getting the word out wide and getting you know, the top level press and the, you know, the good placement on Amazon and iTunes and all that stuff, the stuff that I don't know how to do. And you know we've got some name actors in it, and it's such a relatable topic that I feel like I had way less concern that somebody else would know how to market it. You know, it's it's a thing that well, everybody knows what Blockbuster Video is, and most people remember it fondly if you're over thirty. So go ahead, please try to market this wide, and I'm willing to give up X percentage because. I know you can generate more than that. And yes, I was a little bit tired and I am still promoting my first two movies <laughs> every day. Um, and I still, like, I run the social media for Blockbuster and the other two movies. I'm constantly, like, switching between Instagrams and doing posts and making sure we're engaging on Twitter
1: with the people with the thing and, you know. Well. I I desperately want to talk more about Project 88. Um, so, <laughs> so, so like when you set out the different 88 pieces of the movie and you, you 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 know whatever sectioned it out, did everyone just want to do certain scenes or was it hard to get people to do certain scenes that weren't as popular? Like, how did you navigate that? It well, I
0: put them up. I did like this labor-intensive thing where I broke it up and then put all 88 scenes on a website. I bought a.com because I'm old school like that and put like a thumbnail for each scene and a little description of like, this is the scene where Marty, you know, falls in the water off the hoverboard. And, and then we let people sign up. When they signed up, they put their top choice, their second choice and their third choice. And I tried to give everybody their top choice if it was available, but you know, they filled up really, really fast. So I tried to give people in their top three. And if we couldn't, it did get to a point where I had like four scenes left that nobody wanted. And I did one of them. I handed some of them off to, to friends.
1: Um, but yeah, there were definitely more popular parts than other parts. And then, so you didn't end up actually getting multiple versions of any scene. Like you only got one for each because you had your system where people actually got to pick or, or got assigned scenes, right? Right. I got two duplicates and what I did in the edit is I used a little bit of both
0: okay. um, so that everybody who put the time in was included. But the reason there were duplicates is because of lack of communication. It was mm. spread across, I think, seven different countries all over the world um, because it got shared after the initial batch. It got shared in these Back to the Future fan groups that were global. And so some people, there was a little bit of a language barrier or... They just were slow to answer emails. So I would be like, are you sure you're going to get this done in time? And then not hear back for three days. So I would hand the scene to somebody else. And then on the deadline, I got both versions back.
1: Uh, okay. Which scenes were those? Uh, That's the one,
0: <laughs> the one where Marty's under the desk, uh, trying to get the almanac. Oh, nice. Yes. And Strickland <laughs> smashes his hand. Uh-huh. That one's a duplicate. And there's one other, and I, I can't remember. You were probably the biggest fan of this movie of anyone I've met. This so is so funny. This is what this podcast
2: I... is now. This is now a Project 88 I, I, interview.
1: I was like watching the movie and like exclaiming to myself about how amazing it was and just saying, oh my God, I can't believe they did this and watching it while eating dinner and just completely blown away. And I, and I watched like the first 20 minutes and then I rewatched it with my wife because I wanted her to see the whole thing. And then after like, you know, 45 minutes in, she was like, I, I can't do this anymore. And then I was like, okay, I'll, I was like, okay, I'll continue on my own.
0: Yeah, there's some charm to it because it's so oh, nonsensical. It's, it's so charming. Some of the rev- the YouTube comments and stuff that we've gotten have been very, like, people are very angry that it's
1: not good. And I'm like, <laughs> but you don't understand... But in some ways, it's so so great, though. You can see how much everyone loves the movie because that's one of my all-time favorite movies. I watch it probably twice a year along with the other two. And, um, you know, so like just seeing a different version of it and being reimagined by these fans was like, oh, my God, just incredible.
2: I almost did it, Um, Taylor. I don't know if you know that, but like you were talking about it so much on social media and you – you have this way of communicating that feels very democratic. Like, come and join us. We're going to do this thing. And I was like, okay. <laughs> like, <laughs> and, I, and I ultimately, I was like, this is too much to bite off. And I think I was still, I it was before I quit my job. But point being like, um, I'm wondering if that's also how you got your celebrity interviews for the last blockbuster. Did you see that? Did you see that segue? Did you see <laughs> me come wreck around? <laughs>
0: Whoa. Um, no. I did not just do a Facebook post and invite every celebrity in the world to come into our movie. No, but was it
2: your charm? I think it's, I'm guessing it's your charm is what I'm getting at. Uh,
0: Maybe it's part charm. I don't know how charming you can be when emailing somebody's assistant. That's true. Um, Well, One was charm. One one person in our movie said no twice. And then the third time, I'll just say who it is. It was Adam Brody from television's DOC. And... um, (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Jennifer's body I think is nice. I love Adam Brody Am- oh.
1: Amazing. Oh I love Adam Brody
0: he did not want to be in our movie but he had worked at Blockbuster and I knew that um, he had done like an Entertainment Weekly interview about it and I really wanted him in the movie because I thought well you gotta have some stories and also you're Adam Brody and I watched the heck out of the OC and my <laughs> wife, and I, me, my me wife too. and I were rewatching the OC <laughs> after he had said no the second time and I don't know if we had had too much wine or what the idea was where i thought i'm just gonna give it one more shot and i think at like 2 a.m that night i wrote an email back to his manager being like look i know he doesn't want to be in my movie but my wife and i were just watching the oc and he is by far the best actor on that show well,
2: that's true And it's <laughs> the
0: only believable performance <laughs> oh. and i just love him no, so much I'm and i just think that. if you let him know that i think that he might want to do the movie and the next day sure enough uh adam will be in your movie let's schedule the interview wow that's amazing
2: two two things um one (laughs) like the cardinal rule is when you hear a no you don't you go you disappear like so the fact that you went a second time and then this is the first time
0: hearing of that rule
2: well it's unspoken and until now (laughs) so this very moment and then the second thing is why did you were like all of a sudden, you were like, let's just ask Adam Brody. Uh, like, did you Google people who worked at Blockbuster? And that's- yeah.
0: Okay. Yeah, when we started working on the movie, when I got my uh, producing partner in on the movie, after it became like a real thing, we made a list um, and we did the research and we knew certain people famously had worked at video stores like Quentin Tarantino, Kevin Smith, Adam Brody came up in our Google search and also Paul Shear talks a lot about his time at Blockbuster. And so we had this list of all these people who had ties to video stores. Um, Also, Jamie Kennedy was on that list because of his character in Scream, which Ah, was basically a Blockbuster clerk. And so we started with those people and we reached out to them first. And then it it reached out to other, or branched out to other movie-related celebrities, I'm a big podcast listener. So I know Doug Benson from his Doug Loves Movies podcast. And I'm like, well, Doug loves movies. He'll probably be in our movie (laughs) about movies. Uh, And then Sam Levine is always on Doug's podcast talking about movies. And I either wanted really funny people who loved movies or people who had worked at video stores and people who would add to the story. But also it was very important to me the whole time that it be funny, that it not just be like, and then their stock rose to this number, and then they did a weird advertising thing, and that's why Blockbuster went out of business. And we do have that in the movie, but instead of me doing that dumb voice, we got Lauren Lapkus, who is hilarious to be our narrator, because I don't want it to be boring, ever.
2: And you were just like, uh, be in my movie, you just emailed managers and agents, and then you just, because it's documentary, maybe you didn't have to pay them for their appearances?
0: Right, we did have a couple people ask for money. They are not in the movie because we didn't have <laughs> money. We did also reach out to people who were iconic from what I consider rental movies, like movies that didn't do well in theaters, but oh,
3: you know yeah. found a life,
0: oh, yeah. like a Kevin Smith. You know his movies all had lives at video stores that they never had in the theaters, um, and a lot of those people, surprisingly a lot of them came back with like the same dollar amount. They're like, it cost five thousand dollars for yeah. me to be in your movie. I'm like, that's weird. And it's like not the same managers, not even the same agencies, but they all had like a $5,000
1: appearance fee. Right. So they are not in our movie. And and so pretty much everybody in the movie, they all came from just agent reaching out and, or just multiple times emailing their agents. Was, was Adam Brody the only one you had to email like t- twice or three times or were that, that it happened a couple times? Let's see. A lot of them were
0: tough to schedule because we were, we live in Oregon and trying to, you know, book trips to LA where everybody's in LA and they're like, okay, well we can do it on next Sunday at 11 AM. And this is like Thursday. I'm like, can we get a flight? Can we get a crew? What <laughs> is this possible? And then we did get down there a couple of times and then people were like, Oh, sorry, I can't do it. Can you come back in a couple of weeks? And we're like, well, that was, you know, $900 out of wow. our minuscule budget Uh, we would find something else to film, but only I went because we couldn't afford to bring other people. Yeah. It was mostly reschedules where the, the communication, I didn't do a lot of follow-ups. I guess I knew the unspoken rule about if someone says no, they mean it. We did follow up with like some of the people who asked for money and be like, what if there's no money? Would you, how about?
2: (laughs) Did anyone change their mind? No. (laughs) I mean, once you got one person, right, that's kind of ammo for the next person to come on board.
0: Right. So a couple of the people, they weren't through agents. They were people we knew, like uh, my producer Zeke um, wrote TV shows in the nineties and like um, had worked with a lot of people and he knew uh, James Arnold Taylor, who's in our movies, a voice actor. He's Obi-Wan Kenobi in the Star Wars cartoons and Leonardo in the Ninja Turtles. And Oh, nice. Like to me, that's a huge deal. A lot of people don't know his face, but they've seen his work. And because he was good friends with my producer, we just started with him. We're like, you love movies. You're in the industry. Do you want to be in our thing? Also will you do the the iconic trailer voice for our trailer? Because he's oh, yeah. that guy. He like does it for the real movies. So we started with him and he's kind of indirectly how we got to Kevin Smith and, Um, I think Jamie Kennedy was also a friend of a friend. So a few people, it wasn't through agents or any of that. It was like friends of friends of friends. You know, I I think we booked Kevin Smith between Adam Brody saying no and Adam Brody saying yes. And that definitely helped, you know, that kind of thing. But like Paul Shear, we just emailed the podcast. They do How Did This Get Made? It's a great movie podcast. And I wrote not even specifically looking for paul even though i knew he had worked at blockbuster was like does anybody from your movie podcast want to be in our movie about movies and they wrote back being like well paul will do it (laughs) (laughs) okay great i'll be there
2: (laughs) taylor what is the first film you ever made and how do you feel about it now
0: Uh, my first film was a a feature-length documentary the it's called here's to life it's a about a band. We've talked about it. And <laughs> I I like it. There's a lot I would have done differently had I known better. But I didn't know better. I was just trying to do a thing. So I think it holds up. It's definitely for a very specific audience. And that audience still loves it to this day. So I feel like it was a success. But I, when I watch it, I'm like a little... Oh, why didn't I do a better job with that?
1: I didn't know, you know? Well, you And you learned, which is like the really important thing about filmmaking, right? You like learn as you do. Next question. What's the best filmmaking advice you've ever received? I was thinking about this because I do listen to your show and I know these
0: questions <laughs> in advance. Um, and I can't figure out where I heard it, but, you know, I've always listened to the filmmaking podcast and watched the YouTube channels and the film riots and the backyard visual effects and all those people. And somebody said back when I was just shooting music videos and not, never even thought I would do a feature, but the advice that really stuck with me was um, to go with your gut to like, if something doesn't feel like it's a good idea, don't do that. And if like somebody feels like they might be a little sketchy, don't work with them, that kind of thing. It's taken me a long time to actually implement that and actually listen because i you know i'll get a bad feeling about something but i'll do it anyway because i'm such a doer i always (laughs) want to be working on stuff i say yes to all the projects and then i go like oh i i knew that one was going to be stupid why did i listening to your gut is if you've got a good gut some people don't get that feeling i don't know
2: i love that i love that. it's like the power of no a lot of people don't even know that they could say no yeah Um, i'm still trying to figure that out. Yeah um what are your goals as a filmmaker whether they're monetary or title you know a certain amount of films or awards or whatever you're looking for (laughs) I,
0: i would love awards and and titles and money but i think the goal is to just keep doing what i'm doing i feel i feel very lucky that i've made movies that can help me pay my bills and that i haven't had to get a day job since 2016 and so i'm i'm happy i am a little bit bummed right now to be finishing up a project without a next project to start where i'm like if i if i stop for too long i am going to end up working at best buy and they're going to stop selling dvds at some point so i'm going to hate it there you know know? Uh, so yeah that's the goal just make stuff people like i really try to make movies that I know at least for some people, it'll be something they like. Like there's no better feeling. I know there's like one person who for them, my first movie is their favorite movie. And I know that's true for my second movie. And I'm hoping that's true for the last blockbuster. And I don't care if it's because they're a blockbuster super fan and somebody finally made that movie for them. If you think it's for you, you're right. And so (laughs) that, that feeling you get when you get like some weird review where the reviewer is like oh man that one part was that was my favorite it really connected to me and it's something that i just threw in because i thought i would like it or i thought it would be funny that's the goal it sucks that we all need money and we can't (laughs) survive (laughs) just making fun stuff like the back to the future one i'm never gonna make a dime we don't own any rights we can't monetize the youtube i think zemeckis is making money from our remake (laughs) because (laughs) of how youtube works but like that was super fun, and I wish, I wish Netflix would swoop in and buy one of my movies for eight hundred thousand dollars, so I could spend the next five years
1: just making Back to the Future remakes. But that's not how it works. Yeah, I wish we all lived in the Star Trek future where you know money doesn't exist, and you know everyone loves each other. There's you know peace among the Federation of planets, all that stuff. Um, but yeah, one day maybe. Uh, if you could go back in time, what's one piece of advice you would give yourself?
0: I would tell myself to plan more uh, slow down a little bit because you know my first movie and even starting out on my second and third I really didn't know what I was doing you know I would be listening to podcasts like yours on my way to go do a shoot and somebody would say something like reorder your interview questions in a way so that there's you connect with the person before you ask the tough questions or whatever the thing is that I learned from this podcast or that YouTube video or something. I wish I had done all that before, or (laughs) at least (laughs) earlier. I didn't go to film school. I don't know the proper ways to do the things, but I feel like I learned something new every week, every day, hopefully. And the stuff I know now would have come in real handy four or five years ago when I was, starting and especially not knowing what to do when i finished my first feature i had no idea what to do i didn't know about film festivals i didn't know about distribution i never even sent it to distributors i just sold dvds out of the trunk of my car like as if i was in a punk rock band and it was the only thing i knew as far as making money with a feature and now you know it's not new anymore it's hard to make money with that and so i missed an opportunity but if I had known better, it would have been better.
2: <laughs> you're still in a much better situation than most independent filmmakers, though. Even, even if you didn't, maybe you could be a millionaire. Who knows? But um, you're, you're doing quite well. Uh, last question. You know it's coming. Ready? Is making movies hard? Yes. Yes. It's hard.
0: Yeah, it's really hard. It's, it's, um, I think it's hard, but it's not as hard as the jobs that the people I know have and hate. But part of my job, like for the last Blockbuster, I got to spend a day with Kevin Smith and not just hang out, but talk about movies, talk about loving movies. And for the Ska movie, I got to spend a day with Goldfinger and talk about Ska music. It's cool. And it's like... I would have paid to do those things. You know, I would have contributed to somebody's Kickstarter if the reward was go spend an afternoon with Jamie Kennedy talking about Scream. I would have been like, yes, where do I, how much is $100? Okay, I'm a backer at $100. And so I I have to keep reminding myself of that, that it is hard, but it's also awesome. Like there are certainly moments in filmmaking that are awesome that you can't get any other way. And I I did, I played in bands for years and I do kind of see all the similarities of like playing a really cool concert for a bunch of people has a similar feeling to like screening your movie at a film festival to a packed crowd that laughs at all the jokes or, you know, is quiet at the dramatic part, whatever the thing is that you want out of an audience. And so I feel like I'm very lucky to be
1: making movies even though it's hard. Fantastic answer. Um, so uh where should people go, uh Taylor, if they wanna, you know, watch any of your movies, uh, watch the Last Blockbuster. Like, do you have a website? Like, where should people head?
0: Yeah, um, I do have a website that I never update. It's popmotionpictures.com, but I think it links to all the movie websites that I do update. Uh Last Blockbuster were on all the social medias as Last Blockbuster Movie. My Scott documentary is at ska movie, and I update all of those all the time. You can just Google my name and find me on stuff, and I want to be friends with everybody. So be my friend.
1: Nice. Awesome. Thanks for coming on the show, man. This has been great. And I also want to add, you know, it's awesome to have a listener on the show. It's like really cool to, like, have someone be a part of the community and then also be making stuff that you know is awesome and and you know is great to talk about. So yeah, it's a really fun conversation. I find your show
0: super super valuable and. I do contribute to the Patreon. I think other people should too, if they can. Thank you. Thank you so much. It is, especially now when we're so isolated. Like, I listen to you guys every week and I feel like we're friends. I know you guys don't feel the same way, but <laughs> it's like this this video call was me getting to hang out with the two people I spend an hour every week with. And I wish I wish there was more filmmaker community and everybody was just helping each other out, like, like the way you guys do with the podcast and and the way you know Facebook groups and other people try to help each other out because it 's hard to be independent and yeah. there aren 't a ton of resources that are that are basically free it's it 's awesome, so thank you guys for doing the show and thanks for having me on yeah our pleasure
1: i I just love the the whole community of filmmakers because i I do really feel like if you reach out to like most like filmmakers. Like, they're, they're willing to help you, you know? They, they will respond to you. Like, I had, there's a filmmaker who made a movie that's similar to my movie, The Alternate, that's coming out, and um, I just emailed him to ask him questions about him making that kind of story, and he totally got back to me, and we, like, emailed about, like, what it's like to make an alternate universe film. Filmmakers are pretty damn awesome. I mean, you know, and I think people are all just willing to help each other, and, like, that's what I've been experiencing in the last few years is, like, if you reach out, people will generally get back to you. Yeah, I did that
0: uh, with my first movie I called. I just looked on like Amazon Prime music documentaries and I Googled the directors and I emailed them and said, will you talk to me? And I had these phone calls that were like, hey, do you know you need e insurance? Hey, did you, did you clear all your music? Like stuff that I had no idea about when I was making my first movie. And then when it came time, to release my second movie, I did the same thing about distribution and learning. And Liz, you were one of the people that I asked. That's how we, we met. And were very, very generous with your time and I really appreciate that. And you helped me with my decision not to go with a distributor.
2: Yay. <laughs> Amazing.
0: I'm grateful, I made 20% more money because of you.
2: Well, thank you for listening. Thanks to Taylor for being on the show and for being one of our uh, loyal listeners. That is amazing, and we really appreciate you. And let's all support Taylor's film, The Last Blockbuster. It's available to watch December 15th onward on iTunes, Amazon, Fandango now, Google Play, cable VOD, and satellite platforms. It's also available on DVD and Blu-ray from Blockbuster at which is amazing. It's the first uh blockbuster exclusive since twenty eleven. I love that. Um, at last last movie.com Check out our website, makingmovies is hard.com, where you can find links to the things we talked about on this episode. If you want to get in contact with us, send an email to podcast at makingmovies is hard.com. Find us on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, at MMIH Podcast. I am Liz Manichel on Twitter Really desperately trying to get to 2,000 followers Uh, Liz Manichel film on Instagram Alric,
1: I am Alric B on Twitter and Instagram And uh, yeah, I want to get to like, you know, (laughs) 1,500 subscribers I think I've been at like 1,200 or 1,100 for like four years So uh, let's, uh, I don't know how to do that
2: You don't, you don't tweet enough
1: I need to tweet more
2: so, uh, if you like our show, please tell a friend. Help us get the word out. Leave a review on iTunes or Stitcher. Thank you very much to Carly McKeating, our hero editor, for editing this show. And we will talk to all y'all next week.
0: No, we got our rejection letter and it said one nice thing. And I was like, it's we have no press. Yeah. It's going in the trailer. <laughs>